In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I know I'm not the only one here who's hid from something that you needed to do. Maybe it was simple, maybe it was just doing your honey-do list or picking up the yard. Most of us don't go to the extremes that say Jonah did, right? God tells Jonah, go and preach in Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? Jumps on a ship and goes the opposite direction as quickly as he can. So maybe you've not hidden an island or gone off and hidden the wilderness or the desert. But still, I think at different points we've all avoided decisions we've need to make. Or maybe a conversation that you needed to have with someone and you really didn't want to have it. Humans are great at avoidance when we want to be. We like to tell ourselves for the 25th time, you know, this isn't as bad as I think it is. I'm overblowing it. And then one day, the day comes and you can't avoid it anymore. This morning we read about Moses keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, He'd led this flock out into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Moses coming down the mountain with the commandments of God for the second time. This morning was years before that event. Moses is still in exile. Now, remember, Moses had taken himself into exile because he knew he was supposed to deliver God's people, but he did it by killing an Egyptian overseer and then finding out his countrymen knew about it. And off he ran. And after years as a shepherd, getting married, having children, growing older, and I'm sure all that time, he didn't feel like he'd fulfilled his calling. He was hiding. But hey, you know what? He tried. It failed. Maybe it wasn't God talking to him. Then he sees something odd, right? A bush that appears to be on fire but not burning. Now he's in the land of Midian, which is named after another son, of Abraham, born of, after Isaac. That's why you see Jethro, his father-in-law, called a priest of Midian, right? This is another, the Midianites were another group that were cousins to the Jews. Now Midian is on the other side of the Negev, across the Gulf of Aqaba, in what today would be Saudi Arabia. So it's a desert or high desert landscape. Think the southwest of America, Arizona, New Mexico. Having lived in New Mexico for many years, I can tell you, when you see a fire in the distance, you start paying attention. And boy, you can see it for a while. I can remember living down in the valley and watching the fires up on the mountains in the summers. And you can't tell how big they are, but sometimes it's as bright as day when they're burning. And Moses starts looking at it, but he notices that bush isn't burning up. So what does Moses do? Figures he probably ought to go over there and try to figure out what's going on. It's on the mountain of God. Now we know that there's an angel there. Moses doesn't. And as he's approaching this site, God speaks to him. He calls Moses by name. Tells him to take off his shoes. He's on holy ground. And when Moses asks him who he's talking to, God says, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And what does Moses do? All Moses can do is fall down and hide his face. And God said he was calling him because God had heard the cries of his people. 
And he wanted Moses to fulfill God's promise to take them out of Egypt to the land of milk and honey, out of the hand of their oppressors, to see the fulfillment of what God had told Abram years before. We heard that promise last week. And Moses has a series of sensible questions he wants to ask God, because he doesn't really want to be the one to go back and do it. The first one is, God, who am I to go marching into Pharaoh's palace, where you might remember I grew up, and tell Pharaoh, you know, the guy in charge of one of the largest empires in the world right now, to let your people, his slaves, go. And God said, Moses, don't worry about it. I'm going with you. I'm going to deliver my people. And when they're free, as a sign to you, we're going to come right back to this mountain. And you're all going to worship me right here. Now Moses is still trying to avoid this calling. And so he asks another very reasonable question. Well, God, when I go back to my people, some of them may, who may remember that little incident with the Egyptian overseer. Who am I telling them is sending me? And God says, I am who I am. Tell your family I am sent me. That the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, this is my name forever and my title forever. And Moses will lead God's people with God's provision out of bondage and into freedom. Centuries later, God's going to hear his people's cries again. And Jesus would come, but the freedom he was bringing was going to be different. Right before he has the conversation about Herod, which we read last week, Jesus, who's just given the disciples the Lord's Prayer, just talked about how the greatest this generation would need a great sign of Jonah. They need to be told about their need for repentance, their need for change, and then something would happen after three days. Because if there wasn't change, judgment would come. And like people all over, one has to change their life to avert the bad results they can see coming. Like Moses, they deflect. They start telling Jesus about the really bad stuff in the world. Hey, Jesus, what about those Galileans who were killed by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor? And Jesus asked them, why do you think that happened to them? Were they the worst sinners in Galilee? Hey, I'm from Galilee. I could probably point them out to you. But unless you change, you're going to see that same fate. Do you think those people who had the building fall on them, do you think they were the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. But if you don't change, the same thing is going to happen to you. They're not worse than anybody else. In Matthew, Jesus says, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Good and bad things happen sometimes just because they happen. A tower has a structural fault you don't know about. You're in a crowd when things get violent. It's not your fault. You didn't build the tower, right? You're not the building inspector. You didn't know the tower was in that shape. You didn't start the violence. You're there on your way to the temple to go sacrifice and worship God. And Jesus says, you have to change. Every one of you, each and every one of you, each and every one of us. But look at the parable of the fig tree. The man wants to tear down this unproductive fig tree. He wants to rip it out and put in one that's productive. Makes sense, right? And the gardener says, now hold on, let's wait. 
Let me spend some time and work with this one particularly. Let me work in its roots. Let me put some manure around there. Let's do all the things we need to do and give it one more season to produce. Why? Because as we say every Sunday, God's property is always to have mercy. When Jesus was talking about the sign of Jonah earlier, we tend to get stuck in Jonah's story with the big fish, right? Jonah runs away, he gets on a boat, then he's swallowed by a big fish. When we get to Sunday school, that tends to be where we end Jonah's story, right? With Jonah getting spit up on the ground outside of Nineveh. But read the rest of the story. Jonah preached, and the Assyrians repented. And then what happens? Jonah pouts. Jonah pouts because he really wanted to see the Assyrians get judged by God. The Assyrians had just gotten done laying waste to Israel. Torn down the cities. Judah and Jerusalem were still there, but he wanted to see God's judgment fall. And God's judgment was stayed. In a few weeks, we're going to see the sign of Jonah fully given. Everyone is going to be given the opportunity to change. And unlike Jonah, who pouted when that change happened, our Savior welcomes us all in, grafts us into the vine, and makes us co-heirs with Christ. O God, you are my God. Eagerly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a barren and a dry land where there is no water. Paul brings us this morning right back to Moses, talking about his ancestors and their journey from Egypt. And Paul says, listen, when you read the story, it's all foreshadowing about what Christ was going to do. They were all under a cloud, right? Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And all passed through the Red Sea. And because they were baptized by the cloud and the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. But the drink from that rock, that rock that Moses struck, that rock was Christ. And in spite of all they'd been through, Paul is saying they still hadn't repented. They still hadn't changed. My soul clings to you. Your right hand holds me fast. This is how the psalmist describes his relationship with God. Paul's writing here to the Corinthian church, which is a largely Gentile congregation. And he's trying to explain to them that what they've been doing, going back to the pagan temple to eat, and over time to go do other things is wrong. Not because they don't have freedom in Christ. They do. Not because those lifeless idols have any power over them. They don't. But because they're not considering those weaker than themselves. They're putting their social status in the community above the good of their new siblings in Christ. Their new family. The church. People see them there and are tempted to go back themselves. And not just to go back for lunch. Not just to be seen by the powerful people but to worship, to worship those other gods. He describes Moses and the Israelites' redemption as parallel to the church. Moses leads them out, to, out of slavery, and Jesus comes and leads us to freedom. And Paul gives allusions to some of the judgments we find in Exodus, the 23,000, the serpent, the destroyer. He's warning these brand new descendants of Abraham not to follow that example. Don't test God. In the Old Testament, read the books of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
comes and God comes and delivers his people, and most of them can't stay faithful to him. The people wanted to be delivered. But when they were, they kept complaining they'd rather be sitting on the Nile, eating leeks and onions and slavery. They'd rather live in bondage, in security, in earthly comfort, than to step out and trust God and go to the new land. Paul is warning the Corinthians not to be like them. Don't take for granted your redemption. Our ancestors did. Look what happened to them. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. Only Joshua gets to go into the promised land. Paul is begging them not to go back to the pagan lifestyle they left. Their freedoms in Christ don't extend that far. So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. Instead, Paul challenges them to put away their knowledge and to be humble and listen to the examples from their new family. God's not allowing tests and temptations that are beyond our strength. Why? God is faithful. With those temptations, God is always going to provide a way out so we can endure them. God's mercy is new every morning. Paul wants them to be reconciled to Christ, to put aside their social standing, because God doesn't see distinctions in birth anymore, remember? And neither should we. Stand firm and know that Christ was with Moses and the people of God in the wilderness, and he'll be with us to nourish us, no matter where he calls us to go. And he has called us to step out and share God's love with everyone. Amen.